0: And so there's this verse, for those of you who are here and followers of Jesus, you've probably heard this before. It's the line, we are citizens in heaven. Your citizenship is in heaven. This was written written in Philippians, in Philippians 3, 21. Paul writes this to a church in Philippi. He takes empire language and he actually uses it to say, actually, you as a church, sort of like how Philippi is a colony of Rome, you are to be a colony of heaven." You are to be your citizenship in heaven means um, means something here and now. For me, when I first heard this phrase "citizenship in heaven," for the longest time, and I don't know why. uh, Oh, I can postulate as to why. It always meant something outside of this life. One day, I will know what that phrase means. That somehow I became a Christian, and now my citizenship is in heaven. I am a citizen of this afterlife. And yet for Paul and for Jesus, it meant something actually very different. I I was always left feeling that, okay, and I know this for many people, I'm left to participate in the normal rhythms of what it must mean to be a citizen here and now. I'm just passing through. And one day that citizenship in heaven will like kick in, like I'm waiting for my visa. For Jesus and Paul, though, these were actually about the real world. Peter uses this phrase, the church is to be a holy nation set apart, aliens and strangers in this land. All this was not about embodying a set of political suggestions for the world. It was about invoking and embodying an alternative. Those with no king but God, those with no king but God, how they were supposed to be, Jesus then has this other phrase you've probably heard often. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not of this world. Anyone heard this phrase before? Jesus is speaking of essence and not location. He's speaking of essence. My kingdom is not of this world. Jesus said this while on trial for insurrection. His kingdom had finally collided with the kingdom of Herod and Pilate and they wanted answers. Ever since Jesus' birth, He had been at odds with the establishment. They wanted him dead ever since the rumors about uh, there being some other king of the Jews. So he's questioned. So let's read from the scripture. Are you the king of the Jews, asked Pilate, a Roman leader. Jesus replies, is that your own idea? Or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied. Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it that you have done? Pilate's trying to figure out why the religious establishment handed Jesus over. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from a different place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, You say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. It's one of those Yoda answers from Jesus. What is truth, retorted Pilate. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jews kept shouting, if you let this man go, you're no friend of Caesar. They questioned, the Jews, the religious establishment, questioned Pilate's allegiance to the empire. If you let this man go, you're no friend of Caesar, Pilate. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out, said, here's your king. Pilate said to the Jews, we have no king but Caesar. The chief priest answers. We answered, we have no king but Jesus. If you've read through the scriptures, you know how wild that statement is. It's wild. First Samuel 8, 1 to 22. This is a central passage if we as followers of Jesus are going to understand how God sees government. The Lord had been the sole king of this tribe of Israel. The point of their existence was to be a blessing to the world. He had appointed judges to settle disputes, but had never been an established government structure for the Jews. There's never a positional leader. There was never a king. God was to be their direct king. In Israel, God was trying to inch humanity back to its ideal of being a people, recognizing him as Lord and was thus free from all human lords. And the Jewish people in 1 Samuel, they wanted a king to be like other nations, to rule over them and to go out before us and fight our battles. That's what it says in the text. To be like other nations and to rule over them and to go out before us and fight our battles. In other words, in other words, the people felt that having a king would make living easier and make them more secure against their enemies. God responded to this request for a king by decrying, quote, they have rejected me from being king over them like all the deeds which they have done since the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, in that they have forsaken me and served other gods. We see that people want human rulers only because they no longer trust God to rule. It suggests, and I will just simply say that, it suggests that the very existence of governments is evidence of human rebellion. A little bold, I'll put it out there. Governments may be a concession on God's part to humans who cannot trust God to rule them. It appears that way in Samuel, and I don't have enough time for the other 15 proof texts. So, back to Jesus. Jesus. He says, His kingdom is not of this world. And then he iterates to Pilate. He says, Because it, it refuses power. I don't have a department of defense, he tells Pilate. I don't, no, no one's going to come because my kingdom is like, not like yours. If I was actually a kingdom, there would at least be somebody knocking at your door trying to get me free. I pledge you different allegiance. It's this way of love. He speaks of this truth. In a world where truth had become smothered and rulers don't even know what it is anymore, Jesus embodies a truth that apparently will set everyone free, even Pilate. Now, all of this is not about embodying a set of political suggestions for the world, this is about invoking and embodying the alternative invoking and embodying the alternative, that there is to be a people with no king but God. This is a kingdom about essence, not location. A kingdom, a way, a politic, a way of living in the world that is not about location. My story, as Rick mentioned, I was a media consultant on a political paint campaign, which sounds way grander than it really is. Um, I was an intern to get some credits and I worked my way on to a political campaign. And because the media guy was fired and I was competent and enough of a spinster, I worked my way into literally a media consultant. I was in charge of all earned media for a national congressional campaign. The reason why this matters in my personal development is because in my mind at this point, i had come back to the faith. I I had this, I had an intellectual kind of trial in college of sorts, but I really, if I look back on the whole of my life, I'd always been really walking with Jesus. God had been chasing me. I understood grace. Um, I didn't know where the church, though, fit into changing the world. I knew where it fit in to announcing the gospel, but I, di- I didn't have a, a framework for it that was helpful, at least for me. And so I go on this political campaign. I began to work on this, and I saw a good man, a great man, who was running for office, which is the only reason why I was there. I didn't agree with everything he stood for. It didn't necessarily align with every part of his party. But I love this man. As a good man. He's still a good man. But I watched him have to compromise over and over and over and over to fit into the system, to compromise how he would have done things, how he would have talked about things, how he thought about embodying a certain... He had to play by rules that did not look like the kingdom. It was fascinating to watch. And I realized when I look back that I had a sense of allegiance being split. The world was changed through writing U2 songs and advocating through politics and church was sort of on the side. My allegiance was split. And it makes me wonder, how would I have responded at that time to this picture, to Kaepernick? I don't know how I would have responded to this. I mean, I get it. Let me humbly submit this to you regarding this picture. The early church would be utterly baffled by the idea that future Christians would shame someone for not swearing allegiance to empire. Utterly baffled. Think about your own context. I don't mean this antagonistically. Like, genuinely think about the subtle ways that we are shaped by what I would just humbly put forth as American civil religion. Do you hold the Pledge of Allegiance as sacred, but you kind of feel like it's weird to recite the Apostles' Creed often? Do you think that making the sign of the cross is superstitious, but you always place your hand over your heart for the pledge and for the anthem? Could you care less about the church fathers, but you venerate the founding fathers? You don't like statues and saints, but a good trip to Mount Rushmore is pivotal for your children's development. (laughs) This one was what hit me. Did I know the Pledge of Allegiance before I knew the Lord's Prayer? Did you know the Pledge of Allegiance before you knew the Lord's Prayer? Some folks may be a little bit bummed to know that God bless America does not appear in the Bible. (laughs) That said, God bless America. In fact, he already has. So let's let's think about that a little bit. There's so much good that has come out of this nation. There is. It's an amazing experiment. Fascinating. I love to be a part of it. In fact, it invites me to critique it. But outside of even that, as a follower of Jesus, I'm not just demanded to critique it. I am demanded to transcend it. So if American civil religion is not our aim, if you're a follower of Jesus, and we're to embrace the kingdom, if we're to live as citizens of heaven, If we're to be an outpost of heaven now, if we're to be a colony of heaven in the midst of our country, if we're to have a different allegiance, what cues do we take from scripture to help flesh this out? Now, Marshall McLuhan, some of you may know, he has a great phrase, very popularized at this point. It just goes like this. The medium is the message. The medium is the message. It's an advertising phrase. And he talks about how the method by which you send a message has just as much impact or more than the content of the message itself. The way you send a message has just as much oomph, impact, or more than the content of the message. To drive this home, imagine you've been talking with your boyfriend for a really long time. You're finally at the place where you're ready to get engaged. You are so excited about getting engaged. You know that it's coming. You've had the conversation. You've hinted about what kind of ring that you want him to buy. And now you're just waiting. You're waiting. When's he gonna do it? When's he gonna do it? When's he gonna do it? Is it gonna be on the beach? Is it gonna be skywriting? What's it gonna look like? You're so excited. As you're sitting there daydreaming about what this ask will be, you hear buzz, buzz, buzz in your pocket. You take out your phone, and it just says, love you, babe. Will you marry me? Communicate something. This is an afterthought. It doesn't change the context of the message, but it's a throwaway thought, simple information. This is the way you send casual thoughts. Regardless of its content, it's communicating something crystal clearly about how they value you and love. Jesus doesn't send a text to us. Jesus comes. It's a baby born in straw and dirt. There's there's something we learn about politics, about the way we're to engage the world. The people are to be when we look at how Jesus did things, not just what he said. How did he enter the world? Born in a manger, he becomes like us. He's a savior, a king who dies for us. That's the kind of king, the kind of president we serve. He flips the whole idea of power. So, it's fascinatingly heretical when Christians want power. It's just interesting. He goes around washing feet. He goes to the most outcast and broken. He heals and stands for the most vulnerable. He forgives, even on the cross as he's being murdered. He forgives his oppressors. He subverts the empire through embodying the kingdom. The kingdom. The dome where God is king, heaven on earth. He is showing us what it looks like, not just with his pronouncements, but with his everyday actions. He notices people, he blesses people, he goes out of his way to find the most lost. And then he tells his followers, he tells us to be like this and you'll be blessed. You'll be participating right now in the joy of heaven. You will literally be in some mysterious way walking in heaven here On earth, God's hope for us is that one by one, we would infect the nations with grace, that we would live the contagious love of God to woo the nations into the future. Scriptures are filled with folks coming together, forming close knit communities, meeting each other's needs. No kings, no major welfare systems, no presidents necessary. His is a theology and practice for the people of God. It is not a set of suggestions for empire. Can empire learn from the way of Jesus? Absolutely. Can we see people use empire, government, our system to the degree that it may reflect some kingdom values? Sure. But where our allegiance is, where our aim is, and how we think to go about change in the end is always in some way compromised. Always, I humbly put forward to you, in some way compromised when it is done through empire, through government. So, I think this is why. Paul writes to Timothy, join with me in suffering like a good soldier for Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. Rather, they try to please their commanding officer. Right? No one, th- Politics, I humbly submit to you, so often is civilian affairs. We get involved and tied up. There's so many great stories about this with the coin and rendered Caesars unto Caesars with the other coin and the fish. Jesus is doing all these little interesting party tricks that are actually helping point to larger realities and critiquing the Jewish establishment saying you guys are getting caught up in the wrong thing. If you watch football, it's a play action pass where you're tackling the guy over here and there's somebody running up the field with the ball. We're missing it. We're tackling the wrong guy. We're on the wrong field. We're playing the wrong game. For all the big and small questions about how to work all this out, we must remember that we, the church, have one allegiance. We cannot serve two masters. We are to obey government, according to Romans 13, not because we have a duty to it, but because we have a duty to God. He tells us to submit to government only insofar as it's possible. Government is simply not worth bucking against if we don't have to because it will distract us from doing our Christian duty of manifesting and spreading the kingdom of God. After all, the centuries of Christians were jailed and even killed for refusing to make sacrifices and for refusing to kill for flags and idols, insisting that there is always something worth dying for, people, but never anything worth killing for. As one famous Christian writer said, I will die for the people of Baghdad, I will not kill for them. I will die for the people of New York, but I will not kill for them. The greatest sin of political imagination is this, thinking there is no other way except the broken system that we have today. The greatest sin of political imagination in my mind is thinking there is no other way to expect, I'm sorry, no other way except the broken system that we have today. One by one, these disciples would infect the nations with grace, with grace, with grace, And so to every single person here who's thinking, this is so naive, it's not. It is foolish, though. And the scriptures say that it's foolish. It's foolishness. It is foolishness. To have the kind of imagination, like an Amish family who had their children murdered in a schoolhouse, the Amish, the most cloistered Christian community we have, are tucked away and they make the front page of the New York Times, why? Well, after their children were murdered in a schoolhouse, they went to their attacker's widow and began to take care of them and feed them and invite them into the community. It's why in Richmond, when people, when a young white man charged into a church prayer meeting and shot people, the elders who weren't killed went to the courthouse and said to the white man who murdered them, he said, I love you, we forgive you. It speaks and it preaches. That's why there are many in this community and others who have asked, how do we really be pro-life? And they're having all sorts of fascinating questions about, well, we got to make sure everyone's in the foster system and ready to adopt, right? Right? What if we started putting up our phone number and letters all around places where there were abortions that said, hey, we can't imagine what you're going through. It must be so hard. We love you so much and there's a group of people who are willing to pay all your medical expenses and who are ready there if you don't think you can hold on to this child we're willing to adopt. Imagination, our political imagination because let me remind you, I could go down a list of this. Let me remind you where Caesar's empire is now. Where is Rome now? Gone. And as heartbreaking as this may sound, let me remind you where our country might be someday gone. This too shall pass. Psalm 33, 16 18, I'll end here. No king, let me sub the word president, is saved by the size of his army. No warrior, maybe the military, escapes by his great strength. A horse, a political party is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all its strength, it cannot save. But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love. Thanks.